Right, ranking the Beatles is back. <laughs> All right, <laughs> it totally flowed. It totally worked. Yeah, that's uh, it. Perfect. Totally worked. Yeah, we're back. <laughs> we're back. How's it going, everybody? <laughs> and worse than ever. <laughs> we're back and still dumb. Uh, <laughs> welcome, everybody. Episode number fifty-eight of Ranking the Beatles. It's good to be back. It's been a hot minute. It's been a real long, hot hot minute. (laughs) Yeah, to say the (laughs) least. Um, Our last uh, new episode release was August 17th, which was uh, not by design. Uh, We had intended uh, for a number of episodes to have come out since then. However, as you may know, or maybe you don't if you're just tuning into our show for the first time, which, welcome if that's the case, uh, we got rudely interrupted by Hurricane Ida. Um, that came here the very tail end of August, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. Yes. Time is kind of this weird construct now. Yes. I don't remember a lot of things. Um, but good grief. Uh, so here's kind of the, the, the TLDR of what happened, uh, for that. We, uh, as you may or may not know, we live in New Orleans, uh, Hurricane Ida over 72 hours developed from essentially like a fart in the ocean, <laughs> a fart in the Gulf of Mexico, to a near category five hurricane at some point over 72 hours. Um, so we evacuated to Macomb, Mississippi, uh, where we rode the storm out in a uh, lovely days in hotel. Mm. Yes, lovely. With <laughs> uh, our two little dogs. With our two puppies, um, a box of records, and some uh, irreplaceable things that we uh, always take with us. Um, thankfully, everything was fine there until the uh, the storm actually came to Macomb. Uh, once it had hit New Orleans, it was way weaker, uh, but it still knocked the power out there. So we were in this hotel with no power. Uh, some friends of ours who live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is like an hour 15 uh, northwest of New Orleans, um, which also got hit, but a lot less than where we were did. Um, their neighborhood had kept power and internet, so they offered us to come stay with them uh, so we went to Baton Rouge for a week, um, and from there, like, everything podcast-related just was put on hold because, you know... We didn't have the bandwidth. Didn't have the bandwidth. Um, <laughs> you know, time-wise, you know, we didn't know where we are going to be. Um, our A lot of our interviews are with, you know, people in different time zones, sometimes in different countries. Uh, so it just was necessary to just, you know, put a pin in it, take a time out. Um, everybody was very gracious about that, that we postponed. Uh, we're now in the middle of uh, rescheduling all those interviews. So things are returning back to normal uh, somewhat. Um, our house made out fairly okay in the storm. We did have um, some damage to our siding, cladding for those of you in the UK. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, we watch enough property shows. To <laughs> um, we had a little bit of uh, damage where a vent blew off the front of the house and rain came in through the through that vent 
and through the ceiling and damaged our floors. So we'll have to get our floors repaired and our ceiling repaired. But we um, are very, very fortunate. We made out way uh, more fortunate than a lot of other people uh, in the in South Louisiana. New Orleans, thankfully, um, mainly had mostly wind damage. Yes. Um, that, have, uh, unfortunately, you know, that caused a lot of problems with our utilities. Um, power was out for weeks here in the city. We got ours back relatively quick. It took about a week before we had power back. Um, but parts of the city, I think, were three to four weeks without power, somewhere up in there. I don't think in the city. I think in the city it was like two, city was like two maybe. weeks, maybe. But there are parts of South Louisiana. Uh, I looked today, as we record this today, it's October 5th. Um, there are parts of South Louisiana that still do not have power. Absolutely. And when the bulk of the damage isn't in the big city, when it happens in you know lower-lying, smaller, uh, more remote areas – the news cycle tends to move away from it really quickly. Uh, so because New Orleans was spared the brunt of the big, big damage, the news cycle's already moved on, and you know some people might not even remember that a major hurricane came through South Louisiana just a month and a few days ago. Yes. <laughs> um, so it's a strange time uh, to be here in New Orleans, to, to, if I'm being quite honest. So before we get into everything today, I want to send uh, some thank yous out to a whole bunch of people. Uh, so many of you reached out to us uh, over Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or email or whatever, um, offering your, your, your support, your sympathy, uh, offers of shelter, offers of assistance. I mean, absolutely amazing uh, for a, a place where we have not met the lion's share of you in real life. Uh, that's really incredible. Um, a lot of our fellow Beatle podcasters were super quick to reach out um, and offer support. We, uh, we did a post that called out a, a handful of organizations uh, that were and still are doing um, relief work. And I know a number of you sent money and funds to them. And that's absolutely incredible. Thank you all so much for doing that. Um, some people actually... We have this thing on our on our show, the whole buy me a coffee thing, um, and a, a number of you bought us coffees, uh, which was tremendous because it helped us pay for some of our evacuation expenses because it costs a lot of money to evacuate, and a lot of people don't ever evacuate because they don't have money for it. Right. Um, so remember to think about, you know, when you see people living in an area where storms happen often, and uh, let's remember that due to climate change, they're going to be happening more and more often. Yeah. Um, when you say, why don't they just leave? It's very expensive to leave. It is. Um, you have to have a vehicle, a reliable vehicle. Um, you have to have somewhere to go, whether that's friends or family or um, a hotel, a hotel, which is very expensive. Uh, and you don't know how long you're going to be there. And if you have pets, the options are even yes. fewer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's very challenging to just pick up and leave. Like we actually have friends that went east or west. We went north. Um, but some people that went east and west 
I know people that took 20 hours to get to Houston, which is normally a six-hour maybe six drive, hour drive. Yeah. a ride around there. And it took them 20 hours because there were so many people leaving. And if you don't have a reliable vehicle, you can't sit in traffic on the interstate for 20 hours. If you don't have enough money for gas, you can't drive that far away and risk getting stuck in traffic and running out of gas and not being able to get to a safe place or back home. Um and then when you do leave, if you are lucky enough to be able to leave, to have the means to go, uh, you don't know how long it's going to be before you can come back. Yeah. <laughs> like when we were gone, you know, we had been gone for a week and they said, you know, it might take at least three weeks to get power back to the city. So from where we were, we were going to have to stay in Baton Rouge because I was working remotely. We both were working remotely. Um and so we had to like we planned to find a Airbnb, which we were fortunate enough to be able to afford to do that, uh, barely, but we could have made it work. Right. Um, but then we luckily got power back on at the house. So we were able to come back uh, pretty quickly. But it's a tough situation for for anybody, even for people who are are well off and better off than we are, you know, I mean, it's, it's challenging for everybody. It's very stressful. Um, So for those of you who reached out to help us, uh, we want to say a huge thank you. Um, Those of you who bought us coffee, that's Mark Hughes, Michael Warner, Jill Alamond, everybody loves Jill uh, (laughs) and Modi Reber. And then our continuing supporters over on anchor, Teresa Brader and Rose Vine. Uh, Thank you all so much for the uh, assistance that you offered us. Uh, the coffees you bought us, it really, really helped uh, relieve uh, some pressure and stress on us during a time when it was pretty stressful. And we really <laughs> did buy some coffee. <laughs> and we, we, yeah, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so thank you all so much. And, you know, for those of you who reached out and, you know, offered words of support and encouragement, uh, it means the world. We've got such a great community here uh, in this Beatles fan land that we found ourselves in. Um, I just can't uh, can't say enough about it. Um, if we've had a few people, a few people have asked, you know, how can they continue to help uh, now that it's well past the storm? There are a number of organizations still doing amazing work. Uh, if you have a few extra shekels in the pocket you want to send over somewhere, uh, we're going to put a whole list of them in our show notes. But just off the kind of top of the list, uh, the Music and Culture Coalition of New Orleans has a grant program for musicians displaced or out of work. Uh, You can reach them at maccno.com. Imagine Waterworks has a mutual aid response network uh, working across South Louisiana. I think they're imaginewaterworks.org. And I actually have to break in and say, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, Imagine Waterworks started a mutual aid Facebook group. And it's just um, been consistently wonderful to see the community support each other. And when there were the really bad storms, I can't remember their names. Was it Laura that hit uh, Lake Charles last year? Mm -hmm. Um, So many people were bussed from southwest Louisiana over to New Orleans because we were fine. Um, and Imagine Waterworks printed flyers with links to that group for people to come post and say, like, tell us what you need so we can provide for you. It wasn't just like, oh, here's a bag of things you may or may not need. It was like, literally, come tell us what you what need. What do you specifically what do you need? Specific, like, do you need clothes? What sizes? Do you need toiletries? What kind? Do you need diapers? What kind? Do you need formula? What brand? Mm-hmm. Like, tell us what you need and we will fulfill. And it was completely amazing to see the – support that this group provides mutual aid 
is amazing. It's it's the way to go. And and there's also, uh, you know, next on the list was down the Bayou Mutual Aid Fund, uh, which the lower Bayou parishes, we have parishes here as opposed to counties. Um, It's the same thing, just a different name. We're weird. (laughs) Um, uh, They are helping the Lafouche Parish area. Uh, They have an Instagram. It's at DTB underscore Mutual Aid Fund. Uh, you can also check out the unitedhomanation.org website, which is helping indigenous communities in the Bayou area of South Louisiana. Uh, Bayoufund.org is helping people in the Terrebonne Parish area. Uh, we're going to list all these in the show notes and any others that um, that we can find uh, should you uh, be in the position to uh, continue offering support to the people of South Louisiana who certainly need it. Um, and you guys are all amazing. All you people are absolutely incredible um i can't thank you enough i've been so excited to uh get back into the swing of things uh with this podcast and talk to all our friends again uh, and get these episodes going we have two that are in the bank that we've just been sitting on because it's just been a matter of having the time to to get things going so i'm super duper excited so with that in mind let's talk about this week's episode i feel like we taped this literally a lifetime ago it does feel like that. Certainly. I feel like I had at least 40 less gray hairs. You know what's happened in during that lifetime between when we taped this and now? Do tell. Um, so, Eric, I'm not playing any vaccinated shows. Clapton <laughs> played a show in New Orleans, and we have a uh, vaccine mandate. So everybody had to show their vaccination card. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about Eric today. Um, and actually, you know, before we get there, I, there are a few other housekeeping things I want to catch up on because we've missed so many things that we wanted to share with you guys. Um, the weekend the storm came, our previous guest, Chapel Hart, who were on our episode for Act Naturally, which was ranked at number 200, they released their brand new album entitled The Girls Are Back in Town. Yeah, they are. And that's super cool because one, it's kick-ass. Two, the title track, The Girls Are Back in Town, was co-written by your boy, me. <laughs> um, me. I, <laughs> me. I co-wrote the title track of their album, uh, Insert Sample Here. Um, it's really, really a great record. They are wonderful women working super duper hard. I think they just got nominated for some like Women in Country Award. Amazing. Like, I think it's like Best Album and Best Group or something like that. Like They are absolutely killing it. So they work really hard. They, I, I follow they them on Facebook and I'm just like, whoo, I'm tired. Yeah. I don't know how y'all do it. <laughs> yeah. They hustle. Um, so go check out their new album. The girls are back in town. Uh, Julia and I appeared on a recent episode of Paul or nothing with our old pal, Sam, uh, talking about Paul McCartney's appearance at the Super Bowl in Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so that was a ton of fun. That was, I think, so cute. One of the last things we did before we shut down. Uh, like, maybe not. I was it? I don't know. Again, I don't know what life time was like. Has no meaning before August twenty seventh. <laughs> um, another previous guest, Andrew Sandoval, who we had on just a couple of months ago. He is the uh, manager and uh, producer of the Monkees, and he does um, all these reissue box sets through Rhino with like the Kinks and the Bee Gees and all these people. Um, he just released finally his book that we talked about, uh, the monkeys, the day by day story. It is like 700 something pages. We just got it this weekend. 
Uh, Julie and I actually went to Memphis this past weekend uh, to see the monkeys on their farewell tour. And we came back and the book uh, had arrived in the mail. It's roughly the size of a phone book. Um, For the youths, that used to be a very large paper-bound book that had the names and phone numbers of everyone in your city. Yeah. Um, (laughs) If you have the book, The Beatles Anthology, add another like 300 pages to it, like almost double that length. And that is The Monkeys, The Day-by-Day Story. I've been coming through it the last few nights. Uh, It's very large, but it's very, very interesting. Super well done. Amazing photos. Just the whole layout is beautiful. Um, There are a few copies left because it's like a strictly limited pressing thing. Like he, this is an independently pressed book, um, spared no expense. Uh, I think last I saw, there were like 50 copies left of the Flexibound book, which is the one I have, and like one or two of the super limited dish. Um, You can get those at beatlandbooks.com. I know a few of you reached out and you had ordered it as well after Andrew's episode. I cannot encourage you enough to go check out this book. It is absolutely fantastic. But if you have a bad back, ask for help. Yes, you may need someone (laughs) to help you pick it up. Um, And one other thing happened while we were gone. And uh, granted, it is a different band, uh, but I feel like we need to, uh, to make note of this. Charlie Watts, the drummer of the Rolling Stones, passed away a few weeks ago. Um, obviously the Stones and the Beatles and their relationship, um, is no secret. Um, everybody knows they're a very tight knit, uh, group of, of fellas coming up together. Um, really? Yeah. (laughs) One, one could say. The Beatles and the Stones were like friends? They palled around a bit. They palled (laughs) around. Um, but yeah, Charlie passed away, which is a huge, huge loss to music, a huge loss to rock and roll, a huge loss to drummers, um, well-dressed people. Mm, yes, he a was. dashing, debonair man. Yes. Never met a haberdasher he didn't like, I would bet. Huge boost to uh, Mick Jagger's ego, because there won't be a, a Charlie Watts to a slap him to down. Punch him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's terrible. I shouldn't say nah. that. I'm sure he misses his friend, bandmate. I mean, I... If you're, it's deeper than friend when I you're mean, God, 50, a bandmate years, for that 60 long. years together. Yeah. I mean, that's um, you're basically brothers at that point. Yeah. You know, their relationships are no doubt, I'm sure, very complicated and strained. But uh, they will be the first to say, most musicians will as well, uh, your band is only as good as your drummer. The drummer is always the heartbeat of the band. And Charlie Watts was not only the heartbeat of the band, but he was the glue that kept all those idiots together over the years. <laughs> um, so, Charlie, rest in peace. Thank you for absolutely everything. So, now, let's get on to this week's program. My goodness, if you've still listened to this intro, I really, really appreciate it. <laughs> um, so, our guest today is a writer and photographer whose brand new book, it's not brand new now, because it was brand new sorry. when we were interviewed <laughs> Uh, his brand new book is called All Things Must Pass Away, Harrison Clapton and Other Assorted Love Songs. Uh, he co-wrote the book with our, another previous guest, Ken Womack. They've been appearing on panels and discussions all over the place lately, talking about this book, talking about All Things Must Pass, talking about Derek and the Dominoes, Clapton's continuing legacy conversation, which we will we'll dive into in this uh, episode as well. Um, he's also the creator of the amazing podcast, Producing the Beatles, 
not to be confused with ranking or recording, <laughs> producing the Beatles, uh, which approaches the catalog of the Beatles from George Martin's perspective as a producer, looking at multi-track recordings and methods used to create the songs that we love. Uh, it's one of the most informative podcasts if you want to know how these songs were made and you want to hear how they were made. He'll often hire musicians like string sections to go into a studio and record the actual parts so he can break them all down to show you exactly how this sausage gets made. It's incredible. Um, highly, highly recommend it. His research on George Martin has led him to contribute to a number of books over the years, including uh, Mark Lewison's Tune In, uh, Way Beyond Compare and That Magic Feeling by John Wynn, Maximum Volume, The Life of George Martin by Ken Womack, um, and Lennon, The Man, The Myth, The Music by Tim Riley, on which he also served as photo editor because he's also a damn fine photographer. Multi-talented man. Very. And he's a fellow New Orleanian who thankfully made it through the storm uh, as well. He was um, one of the few in-person interviews that we've gotten to do uh, in the last year and a half. Uh, so, yeah, uh, without any further ado, let's dive in to our conversation with the one and only Mr. Jason Krupa. Jason, welcome to Ranking the Beatles. How are you, man? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Happy to, happy to have you here. I've got to say, I feel like kind of an idiot because <laughs> I didn't realize until maybe like eight or nine months ago that you were based here in New Orleans. Yeah. Like, I felt like I knew most of the nerds here. <laughs> and then I found nope, there's another nope. one. <laughs> I keep to my myself, my little nerd cave. Yeah. Yeah. Are you born and raised in New Orleans? or I, I grew up in Covington across the lake. Okay. So I moved okay. over here about 25 years ago. Nice. And I'm never going back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the right move. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we start most of our episodes with this now. Uh, how has the last weird year and a half been for you? Obviously, you kept plenty busy yeah, uh, working uh, on a book. Uh, yeah, other than uh, other than crippling anxiety, I mean that the book really really helped keep me sane because it gave me, over, especially over the summer, it gave me it it gave me a project to focus on, mm -hmm. and uh, so every day I had to show up and write at least five hundred words, and um, you know that that kept me on you know on kind of on level for the most yeah. part. Um, so yeah, that was that was good. The photography end of things is weird. I mean, sure, that's what I do for a living. Um, I mean, hopefully those books aren't paying the bills. Yeah, you know, making <laughs> tens of dollars. Um, I mean, hopefully it'll make more than that. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it for every, like just for everybody. It's been kind of strange. I have to say that 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 break during the summer was kind of a blessing for me because it gave me time to focus on something entirely different mm -hmm. and not have to juggle two lives, you know, two two careers, two interests. Yeah. I could only I could only focus on one thing. Right. So do you feel like you would have gotten this book done uh, under different time circumstances? Yeah, I would have finished it. It just would have been would have taken much longer. Yeah. More would have been more stressful. Yeah. You know, for sure. Um, I mean, not that it wasn't stressful. It was just stressful in different ways. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, the end of the world is stressful. No matter how you slice it. <laughs> <laughs> Valid point. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, so, so what brought you to this book? What brought you to wanting to explore that relationship with, with, with George and Clapton? Ken really did. He had to kind of talk me into it. Um, because you know, I, I'm a big fan of all things must pass and I like Layla, not as much, but I like it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, somebody's done this. Like these stories have been told. Is right. there really going to be anything here? And, uh, 
we started looking into it. I started looking into it and, and I realized, wow, it's like a blank. There's mm-hmm. just not, there's not any, anything near what I thought was out there on, especially George's album. And, and then the deeper I looked into it, I realized that a lot of the stuff that is out there has been wrong or is kind of, kind of not quite right or misapprehended or, mm-hmm. and then, and then, you know, now that I've written it, I'm, I feel like I, I have to myth bust with anybody I'm talking to <laughs> online. Right. Um, I'm trying not to engage too much in that because I feel like just read the book, you know, and you know, I'll answer questions sure. after that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's, that's really, and also the fact that I just love the album. Like mm-hmm. I have probably in the past year and a half listened to all things must pass a hundred times and I still listened to it the other day in the car driving around to run errands. So yeah. it's like, I love it. What, what, what tracks you, what attracts you to that record? Cause that's a big record for someone to like, yeah. Put that up that, not that it's not that it doesn't deserve to be on a pedestal, but it's a lot of information to take in Yeah, to say that like, this is my favorite or like, this is my one. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this is my favorite, but I, I mean, it's my, it's probably the solo album, Beatles solo album. I listen to the most. Mm. Um, it's just something about the songs and the arrangements and the whole mood of that record. It's the mood. Yeah. Uh, just really resonates with me. Okay. And I was, I, you know, nobody listens to the jams, right? That's like the, the, <laughs> the bastard child of the record. And, uh, I was on a road trip last year just to get out of town and I had forgotten that I'd loaded that onto my phone. Mm-hmm. So I'm just driving along listening and, you know, hear me Lord ends. And I'm like, Oh, that was nice. And then suddenly out of the blue comes on. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute, where, where'd this come from? And it was such an alien weird. Cause I hadn't listened to it in years, mm-hmm. this weird experience. And I just sat there I'm like, okay, I'm going to, you know, listen through it. And it sort of, it, I, it rose and fell and it was just this, it, it, for all the world sounded to me like, a really bizarre soundtrack to a really bizarre European art film from the early seventies. Yeah. Okay. And cause I watch a lot of weird, you know, European art films from the seventies, <laughs> uh, as you do. And it just, it was just like, this sounds really familiar. This sounds like, you know, something that would go with, with one of those movies. And uh, so I had a whole new appreciation for that in particular, but as far as the rest of the record, it's just like, I don't know. It just, it just works for me. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking before you started recording. I Live For You is is uh, such a great track, and it was left off originally. You know? Really hard. And it's amazing when when your songs are that good that you can afford to go, that's not up to snuff. Like, that's not doing it for me. Yeah. Because when I first heard that, it was like, that's on par with something in terms of, like, yeah. beautiful romance you know, romantic songs. It's yeah. up there. Like that's a brilliant song. It's also, I mean, it's very spiritual too. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the thing. A lot of these songs is that George walks that line of duality. He does it with, with, if not for you too, he right. takes a romantic song that Dylan wrote and he, he, you know, invests it with that kind of dual meaning. Um, but you know, and, and we say in the book, uh, George talked about this, like they just didn't feel like they were, they were getting that song in the session and they, and he abandoned it. Yeah. And Alan White, said that too he's just like yeah it wasn't wasn't coming together so you know i think that's what it is it's like you you feel like you don't have it at the time and then obviously with 30 years hindsight he comes back yeah. and he's like oh yeah this is actually a pretty good song and right. listen pete drake's on there too we should put him on you know? yeah that'll be great <laughs> nice little thing to have in the pocket just sure floating around yeah. this. but it, i mean it was an embarrassment of riches and for sure um i mean side 
two, side three. I mean, they're just so good. Like a whole side is just that good. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I don't want to listen to all of Isn't It a Pity or, you know, I just don't feel like dealing with Wawa or whatever. Right. You know, it's like there are certain songs that I want to skip, but, you know, overall, it's just very satisfying. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's always something to, it's kind of like the White Album. There's always going to be something that, that like is right for the mood that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much there to, to chew on. You know, you're going to find something. Yeah. I always love the kind of like hypothetical discussion of like, you know, which of these songs would have been better as a Beatles song. Yeah. And it's because I mean, some, a, a ton of these songs were like date back to like 1966. I yeah. think Art of Dying yeah. was like written around Revolver. Yeah. Isn't it a pity too? And is it in a pity? And I always think I can't think of many that I would want to hear. No. I mean, there are things I like about the bootlegs of like all things must pass from the get back sessions. Um, there, but I just don't know that it's going to have that same kind of. I feel like with George doing it on his own, he kind of let it have the majesty that it needs to like yeah. be the thing that it is. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just going to be another George track. Right, and I, you know, that was something. There, I sort of went into this with this, the feeling that I think a lot of people have, that you know they rejected so many of his songs. They rejected all things must pass. They didn't actually reject all things must pass. I went back and listened to the get back sessions, and they tried it. You know, they mm -hmm. attempted it. And he says this thing in, in an interview in um, in 1970 where he says, you know, th there were some songs they just they didn't get or you, you would you would have to do the song that they would get the fastest. Right. You know, because they weren't going to spend a lot of time on it. Yeah. So he would try to get these things across to them and it wouldn't click. And he'd just say, well, you know, I'm going to leave, okay. yeah. leave that at the side. Right. And I think that probably happened a lot with him. Mm -hmm. You know, there were songs they didn't get like they weren't going to get Art of Dying in 1966. They might have gone like, OK, I get the idea behind that. That's cool because they'd done Tomorrow Never Knows and that's pretty out there. Mm -hmm. But that was that was not I don't know. I just wasn't going to fly at yeah. that particular time for whatever reason. You for know? sure. I can't project myself into that band and tell you exactly what the dynamic was well, why at not time. I, well, you know, I'm working on it I'm trying every night meditating with my you know with the with the same incense that George would burn I bought some of that by the way that stuff is strong what what is his preferred incense Aparajita is I think what it's called okay. um, he and Ravi Shankar loved it and if you look it up online that's you know that's the selling point is George Harrison Ravi Shankar's oh favorite <laughs> Favorite so incense. Funny. Nice. Is it just like a very strong smell? It's very strong. Yeah. yeah. My 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 uh, sinuses just went, whoa, what's this? <laughs> <laughs> this is new. Yeah. Not sure if we like it. <laughs> yeah. Little intense. Not burning that very often. All things in moderation. Sure, right. <laughs> even the most, even the most uh, light of incense. I, the first time I burned it, I opened my my front door and I was standing outside and, and I was talking to my neighbor and she's like, what is that weird smell? <laughs> it was so strong. It was coming out of the house and she could smell it. Wow. I was like, okay, wow. not just me. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. What it, through researching this book? Cause I think, you know, there's, I'm really looking for, you know, I've, I've, I've obviously we bought it yesterday. Um, and I didn't get to start it last night. I've read the, I read the intro this afternoon. So I'm really looking forward to getting into it. And you talked a lot about uh, yesterday at the at the book event about kind of the the bit you talked you talked about, and it's echoed in the um, in the intro where George says, you know, when they're leaving the um, not the bag of nails, what was the club? Oh, oh God, I'm blanking on it myself. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Yeah, but it's in know, the book. <laughs> and he's think right, and he sees Eric, and he's thinking we ought to invite him. He looks really lonely. Yeah, and I'm I'm 
really intrigued to like read about kind of like the ebb and flow of their relationship. What do you find was like the most surprising thing you learned about the two of them? Cause there's so much. Like, and one thing I'm glad you talked about yesterday also was you didn't, you said you didn't want to get into like the tabloid drama right. of like the love triangle of the relationship. Right, right. And I'm really glad that like, that's not the focus of where you want to go. Yeah. Uh, Cause I feel like that's been done ad nauseum. So yes. what were you most surprised to learn about them? Like what really has like changed your perspective? I mean, I sort of knew the broad outline of, of Clapton's upbringing and Patty's upbringing, but then reading their books and, and getting a clear picture of like, Oh my God, this was really traumatic. Like mm-hmm. Clapton's upbringing is horrible. And, and Patty's in that, that really surprised me is that, what she was dealing with was similar issues of abandonment and abuse and, um, you know, j- just, you know, we call it trauma now, then it right. was not called trauma. Um, and you know, in 10 years we'll probably call it something else, mm-hmm. but they, they were experiencing a lot of, you know, probably the same emotional things, uh, when they were young. So it, it I mean, it was sort of, we did have to deal with the triangle aspect of it. So it wasn't just George and Eric. It was like, what was also happening with Patty? Because she, you know, as much as I just want to talk about the music, once you're talking about Layla, you have to talk about that. Right. And so it was like, how do we address this without, you know, being, you know, just basically telling the story the same way it had been told before. And we don't, you know, we don't push this super hard because I don't want to, like I said last night, I don't want to get into being armchair psychologists. We keep saying that to people, but mm-hmm. you know, you do have to consider that here are two people with a lot of trauma who, you know, are pushing each other toward extreme emotional states in this, you know, give and take this push and pull there, you know, they're going through at this time where they're not consummating this relationship, but they're sort of inflaming each other's emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, that in terms of interpersonal stuff, that was the most surprising thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, the thing about George and his, you know, his sensitivity and his kindness, I think that surprised me too, because, you know, I didn't really have a good sense of what their relationship was. You know, you sort of over the years pick things up just reading here and there, but I never really looked into it very deeply. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how listeners feel about Clapton, (laughs) but I, you know, I, I feel like we were pretty nice to him in the book all well, things it, considered yeah and <laughs> it's, it's an interesting time to, to, bring, to talk about that because you know perception of him you know in real time is changing drastically yes. we talked yes. about this with ken when we when we talked the other day uh, and he was saying you know he's he feels like history won't be kind to clapton in the long run and no. i think um he's certainly not doing himself any favors and i i do have to wonder you know how would that relationship be now if George was still around because George also is like an incredibly spiritual, forgiving, loving person. Um, I I would think he would be the kind of person who you know would maybe maybe from a professional stance say just shut the fuck up for a little bit, but yeah. also go let's maybe talk about why you're wrong. Like yeah. let's have a conversation. Yeah. Um, and maybe try to like counsel him a bit. I I mean I couldn't tell you. But. I don't know. I mean he you know he he got him on stage for Bangladesh when he was just sort of dipping into his heroin phase hardcore mm-hmm. and um you know there was just there wasn't really a whole lot of talk around therapy at that time in any kind of informed yeah meaningful way so uh you know he was doing what he could to help him i don't you know i don't know what that dynamic would be 
Yeah. Now, no one, no one can really say. I mean, as much as George was kind and he was spiritual, he had a very kind of wild side to him, and he was also very cranky. You know, yeah. he could be very cranky with the world and sure. and the sort of the nonsense that we all have to deal with. Um, and he would often deal with a level of nonsense we can't even imagine. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's no way of, of really saying what his response to that would be. I do, I do have to say though, now having looked at. Clapton's life from the beginning sort of all the way through um, this is totally consistent yeah this is not Clapton being somebody other than he actually is this mm-hmm. is this is a a wounded person who is still behaving in these ways because he's never really healed from this yeah and you know probably the fact that he's rich and he lives he's able to live in this sort of like isolated way from people mm-hmm. uh, affords him a certain attitude as well for sure and, and he I, probably doesn't have a lot of people in his life telling him no. Right. That's <laughs> yeah. another unfortunate byproduct byproduct of being very wealthy and very famous. Yes. Right. And I think that's, you know, that's something that I think John dealt with a lot. Yeah. In his life was never having dealt with the traumas that he went through in his life. Uh, even the trauma of the Beatles, like. That is not a natural way to live. No. You know, uh, for anybody. And it it makes you wonder, you know, not, I mean, I'm sure there are aspects of Paul and his personality and how he lives that are detached from what the three of us here might consider reality. Sure. But he seems to be pretty level-headed about things. Like, you have to wonder, like, did he seek out therapy? Like, did he find a way to make these things, you know, not normalize them, but to make them, you know, understandable? I've always been curious about that because it's Uh, such a bizarre life. I feel like Paul, like the stuff that we've watched recently, he, you know, throughout his life, especially like when he got together with Linda and they started having children, like really made it a point to attempt to stay grounded. Like I heard, I was on another podcast or something. I forget where someone said this, Um, uh, but they like, put their kids in like public school mm-hmm. like they 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 didn't like shield them from the world they you know they they sort of made it a tried to and it's hard when you're that level of famous to, to be yeah. <laughs> right to, to try to be a normal person yeah. who like does yeah. their own grocery shopping and stuff but like they at least like sort of made the attempt to stay somewhat grounded and and remain human but then paul is also really good at his facade yeah you know yeah. like he's really good at keeping up a facade i feel like so who knows? You know, and it, it, <laughs> this reminds me of, um, you know, there's a bit at the beginning of the live at the BBC album uh, when they're doing like a little short interview and the interviewer says, you know, you know, what are the things that you, you know, miss now that you're famous? And Paul's thing is riding on a bus. Yeah. Like this, that's like the most sim- simple thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he still does that now. There's all, you know, I saw Paul on the, you know, the tube or something mm-hmm. like that. Like he just, I think as much as he has the facade and I think that is, that is, he's, he developed that. Um, to keep himself safe and to only let certain things out um, and you're not going to break through that. I think, you know, things like that betray this part of him where he really does just want to be a regular person. Yeah. You know, whatever else is going on, we can't know what anybody else's inner life is, even if they tell us and certainly not a superstar. Right. Certainly not somebody who's lived like he has for so many years. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, to me, that's just a little like hint of like, okay, 
you know, he's not he's not doing that to show off. He's not going on to the to a, the bus or the tube just to be able to be like, oh, I hope somebody takes a picture of me and sees that I'm normal. <laughs> you know, it's like he's I, I, I feel like he's actually doing that so that he can feel normal for yeah. a few minutes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, like he's a human and he probably just wants the same thing that we all want yeah. to 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 love, to be loved, to yeah. have friends and, you know, enjoy life. And, you know, that's kind of easy when you have a buttload of money. Yeah. But it also can make things challenging, like like figuring out who truly cares about you and who's just around you because of who you are and what you have and what you've done. Yeah. yeah. I know? mean, it must be very tough to have friends mm-hmm. at that level. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care who, who you are. You know, Clapton probably has a hard time having friends because of who he is. Right. Yeah. I, f- I feel like, you know, once, you know, post breakup, when George moves out to, to Friar park, I think he becomes very private on his own terms. Like yes. his friends are all people that are relatively in the same understanding of his world. Yeah. Like he doesn't have any, fr- like there's no, like, you know, James, the accountant's coming over for tea. <laughs> it's all like Clapton's coming over. Ringo's coming over. Uh, Roy Orbison, you know, like Bob Dylan, like, there were some business people that he, you know, that I, you've probably seen that article of that woman who said, you know, growing up with George Harrison or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there are pictures of her father, and I forget who he was actually, but some sort it was sort of like, you know, the accountant guy. Right. Um, and apparently there was some sort of rift between him and George later on. But um, yeah, there's some of that. But yeah, you do get a sense that there are a lot of people who were. You know, famous. Yeah, he had fam- his famous friends coming over, and they all say he's you know the most generous man in the world, right? And like the best friends you could ask for, but yeah. it's got to be you know within that that confine of his reality, right? He's you know, I think he would be he would be friendly to to the people in Henley, mm-hmm. you know, and he would hire people to work you know on Friar Park, but he you know he had his he had his shield up too. He was sure. protecting himself. I mean. Can you imagine in your 20s what Beatlemania does to your nervous system? I mean, he talked about that, how mm-hmm. you sur- they surrendered their nervous systems. Yeah. You know, you gave your screams, we gave our nervous systems. Um, I think he was very sensitive, and I think I think because of that, he had to protect himself. I mean, mm-hmm. as a physical manifestation of, of you know, the walls you want to put up, Friar Park is a great example of like, okay, I want to surround myself with acres and acres and acres of gardens and a big house so nobody can get to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That that's to me, that's telling for sure. For sure. Um, welcome to psychoanalyzing. <laughs> I know I keep saying I'm, I'm not going to do the armchair psychologist, but I keep getting dragged back. In. I dragged Sorry. myself back into Sorry. it. Well, let's, um, let's back up a little bit. Let's talk your origin story. How do you first encounter the Beatles? I, somewhere in my teens, I convinced my parents to buy me the red and well, the red album mm-hmm. and um so that was the first one i had and then i found like how did you know what that was like wh- like what was your i want to say at some point i must have heard them or was aware of them or had friends who were aware of them and it's at some point in all of this hard days night was re-released in 84 i think it was and that was on cable, so I saw that and, and help at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I became aware of that. And but I think I think I was even aware before then somehow. Um, and my dad would, you know, go to record stores, and I'd go with him, and we I don't I don't even remember what he would buy, but he certainly wasn't rock music. Um, 
And so I must have, I don't know, through osmosis, you know, just mm-hmm. picking it up in the air and whatever. Because I was, I was, I am and was a curious person. Um, so, yeah, so the Red Album and then I found a copy of Sgt. Pepper at a thrift store or a, you know, Friends of the Library type sale. Mm-hmm. And uh, that blew my little mind <laughs> 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 with the headphones and a day in the life, you know, sp- spins through. And I'm like, what was that? Right. You know, instantly <laughs> put that back on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where all that began. Yeah. And then. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, you, you go. I was going to say, you know, from there, just uh, I collected, you know, everything that they released. And then um, a couple of friends were like, oh, have you heard any bootlegs? <laughs> I was like, no. And so one of them gave me a tape, a cassette tape. And that that started it. That's probably why I'm here today. Yeah. Uh, it just it was a rabbit hole that I have never crawled out of. Yeah. So has that always been kind of the the bread and butter for you is the bootlegs? Like once since you have found that. Part yeah, I mean that's it it becomes there's a you know there's a community of people online who are who have been trading this stuff for decades. Mm-hmm. Um even before people you know af, once you know obviously before that people were trading in the 70s vinyl and then they were trading CDs and then it became an online thing and and finding new bits and pieces and it just became this puzzle. Mm-hmm. to put together yeah and every new little bit that came out was a piece of the puzzle to put in and you know mark lewison's book was the roadmap mm-hmm. uh and kind of told us where to put everything and so that there there's a whole that's a whole other world that this is a part or maybe you know sort of the backdrop behind the actual released recordings yeah it, I, I the bootleg world is so intimidating to me and i've I've thought of this because, you know, I've gotten to a point where I've collected all the all the vinyl editions of the canonical albums that I want or right. need. So now it's like, what do, what's next? Right. Because I still, when I go to a record store, B is my first stop, sure. you know? Um, and now it's like, well, what do I get? Yeah. Um, and, you know, you see, you find these bootlegs and sometimes they just sound like crap and you don't yeah. know until you drop 40 bucks on it and then yeah. you're stuck with it. Um, it's such an intimidating world to venture into. Like, I don't even know where to start on it. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been digging into this for over 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And I, when I started doing, it, I started meeting people who had been doing it for 20 years. So I kind of had their, I would, I would pick their brains when I could. And I would sort of pick up on things they were talking about. And a lot of this was on, you know, private forums under underground, you know, trading mm-hmm. online and, uh, just sort of picking up on conversations people were having and, mm-hmm. uh, and getting a feel, but you know, bootleg zone, which doesn't exist anymore. I remember bootleg zone. Um, that R. was R. when I discovered that I started thinking like, what does all this mean? And I, you know, and I was intimidated too. And, and, but I was possessed by this madness and I just thought, <laughs> well, I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> so I dived in and I, I did, I sort of figured like, okay, this bootleg overlaps with this one. And then this one has unique stuff. And then this has one track. And then, and it became, I mean, other people have compiled stuff. I started doing something in the early 2000s called, I called it chronology. And it was, <laughs> it was taking everything and putting it in chronological order, finding the best quality, find, you know, pitch correcting stuff. Cause everything ran at the wrong speed. It was just like, it was, mm-hmm. I talk about it now and it sounds like the craziest, craziest project. <laughs> and it was. But it was, it was, uh, you know, it was a way of engaging with this music. And, you know, again, Mark Lewison's recording sessions has been 
was an epical book for so many of us. So many Beatle writers mm-hmm. started writing because of that book, right? Or started moving in that direction because it it opened a a doorway for us to say this is what scholarship for this looks like. And mm-hmm. I th- and I think in a larger sense, it's what popular music scholarship can look like just in general. Yeah. Um, not just on the Beatles. Just to say, you can go this in depth on these topics if you choose to do yeah. the digging. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it would be interesting and there's a process and, uh, there, you know, there's a whole story here that we don't really, we haven't known about. Mm-hmm. And that just, and it was, it was like the tip of the iceberg. And I think a lot of us are like, well, what else, what's the rest of the iceberg? Like what's underneath here? Mm-hmm. And, but also, but also laying the groundwork for saying, this is how you do scholarship. You know, you don't you don't just like read a bunch of articles in the music papers and say that's the story because that's often wrong. Mm-hmm. And then you fight to... about it on Facebook. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the funny thing is a lot of a lot of that's what I found in, in writing this book is that a lot of people had not gone back to the music papers and found stuff that was actually usable, you know, mm-hmm. like first person reports. Real time. Yeah. Like contemporaneous. Yeah. One of the things about Derek and the Dominoes forming is is the timeline of how that came together. And I finally worked that out. I was very proud to put all those pieces together. But one element of that is their show on June 14th, 1970, when they're actually named, they come together um, at the Lyceum. And there are ads in the paper the week before the show, just before the show that are saying Jim Keltner is going to be the drummer, Hmm. not Jim Gordon. And you know, he was expected to join that, to be in that band. He was going to come join them for their tour. And, you know, that's confirmed by reports in the press, you know, and, and, you know, the reports of like that show, actual reviews of the show, people writing into the music papers, responding to that show, mm-hmm. finding that stuff. That's, that's in the music papers. You know, that's where it's useful. It's not a journalist who's saying like, well, you know, I overheard this thing and this guy was going to be doing this and this might happen. Cause there are tons of reports of like, you know, in the seventies, the Beatles are going to get back together. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that kind of thing is, is total nonsense. But, uh, and you have to have your bullshit detector too. you you know, you read something, you go, okay, that's, totally untrue like that that doesn't make and you read you know as you read enough you get a sense of like okay well this could be plausible or you know this guy totally made that up Mm -hmm. so yeah but so those music papers are very important the the actual contemporaneous reports right you know looking at that stuff yeah okay um as you know your your other job uh as a photographer right uh so you're obviously a very artistic creative person so i like to ask this to every creative guest we have uh, in a very broad scale, how do you feel the Beatles have influenced the way you work and the things you do? Ooh, that's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to give the you know the sense that the Beatles are the only thing I listen to, and you know that I that I only watch Beatles movies. Or, <laughs> like there's other. I have hard day, music. I have a movie. hard hard day's <laughs> night on loop in my home. <laughs> Twitching away on the couch. Oh, here comes Ringo. Um, although it's funny when you watch this stuff, even even their asides become part of the loop in your head. Mm-hmm. You know, like on the recordings, the bootlegs, just the little things where, where, you know, John says something funny between takes or, you know, Paul's broken a glass, a glass, Paul's yeah. broken a glass. Like yeah. those things stick in our minds so that's the worst thing about being a musician like so i'm in a beatles cover band yeah and we play these songs and i'll start thinking about like you know 
I can never do the lyrics for Help Right because every live version I've ever heard, John never does them right. Right. <laughs> so I always blow it on Help. Um, and there's a couple other things where I always just revert to like the wrong lyrics because I've heard them on a bootleg somewhere. I heard them on yeah. anthology or something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, to get back to your question, um, I mean, w- one thing is that is, and I think it's consistent with um, what I know about other artists is that they were open to mistakes. You know, mm-hmm. Ornette Coleman said, when I realized I could make mistakes, I knew I was on to something. Mm-hmm. And and the Beatles did that, too. They there Something would happen and be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Let's let's keep that, you know, or yeah. can we do it again? Or, you know, so um, that aspect of creativity of like just being open to, you know, don't try to control everything. Don't try to make it perfect. Kind of leave some room for error, leave mm-hmm. some room for mistakes and kind of discovery. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. The other, I mean, the other is just learning from their process, you know, that they would try things over and over. And other artists do this too. People I've talked to plenty of painters and photographers and you see filmmakers do this too, is they, they will keep exploring the same thing over and over until they get it. Mm-hmm. And they still keep exploring it because they're, they're kind of obsessed. Um, so, you know, it's okay to, to try something and say, I don't really like that. I'm going to do it again. Yeah. You know, they did, you know, Strawberry Fields is a great example of that. Perfect. Yeah. But there's so there are a lot of songs they did that, you know, it wasn't just that one, even earlier songs. Um, you know, Please Please Me, mm-hmm. you know, it's much slower to begin with and different kind of different arrangement. And then they speed it up and, you know, they discover something else and it's a, it's yeah. a hit. So I think that's an important lesson for any creative person is, you know, do it. It Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad, but just do it. You know, get it out there, and and if you have to redo it or if you have to revise it, then yeah, that's fine. Do that's the again. process. Yeah, yeah. I think you you talked about that in the Strawberry Fields episode of your podcast, right? Yeah. How they, I, I think it was George Martin, sort of gave them permission to use the studio as a creative space, right? Not just a finalizing space. Right. It was like, okay, we're gonna let's let's do this. Yeah. And then like, did you want to try something? Oh, you want to try that? Okay, well, let's try it. We'll, we'll see see what it sounds like. Yeah. And then sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, and both are okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's wonderful. No, he had the power to do that, and I think uh, I think one of the greatest things he gave them was was just by saying yes to their crazy ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, you come, you you've got a song on one chord, and and you want to use tape loops. Okay, let's try let's it. Find it, yeah, yeah. Let's figure yeah. It out. You know, you're singing lyrics from Timothy Leary's interpretation of the Tibetan <laughs> Book of the Dead. All right, <laughs> and George sure. doesn't know what that is. <laughs> Sure. He didn't read that. Just book. sign my checks. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was more than that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, everyone. Don't set my house on fire. Um, <laughs> no, but it's like it's so great to have someone give you that permission, especially because they were so young yeah. and inexperienced, and he was so knowledgeable. He was the grown up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were just like, well, we want to do this bananas thing. And he's like, yeah. And by that time he trusted them and he knew he even knew by 1963 there. I found uh, I forget it's New Musical Express, an interview with him. Uh, they're talking about the studio and and he 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 could tell they took to the studio like water, like mm-hmm. ducks to water. It was just a natural thing for them. Yeah. So, you know, he at that point, he was he trusted them enough. They were obviously dedicated to the process they would they would go in and they would work hard and even just how they had used four track between say 1963 and 1965 had to tell him 
that they were on top of this. Like mm. they understood the studio. And then once I think once revolver is like the big flip, flip switch, right. You know, mm. it's like everything clicks right here and they suddenly discover they can do all these things. And that's the album with the excitement and the, you know, everything is, is just discovery every session almost. Yeah. That at least that's the sense, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and they're also coming with the material to make it worthwhile. Yeah. Like yeah. if they were coming in with like, you know, C and B quality songs, right. What's the point of, right. you know, sure. Let's, you know, throw a bunch of loops at it and see what we can right. make, you know, out of this one song, <laughs> this one chord thing. But yeah. when it's already, you know, going to be, you know, it's going to be good. Yeah. It makes sense to, to take that, that risk. Right. And it was, you know, it was the five of them there, the pressure, <clears throat> uh, that was created by that chemistry, mm-hmm. you know, between them. I'm mixing my scientific uh, disciplines, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they were all contributing something, you know, and people tend to ignore Ringo, but Ringo's contributing something too. Oh, for sure. Um, and the thing is that his, you know, we're, st- I'm getting on tangents here, but his, his <laughs> contributions are kind of invisible, but you know, he's an important part of that band. He yeah. was there for a reason. It's not like these three brilliant guys are going to have some, somebody they have to drag along, you know, and, and come on, keep up Ringo. Well, I mean, he's the, it's the perfect analogy of like a foundation. Like you yeah. need that strong solid foundation. He doesn't have to play the most complicated thing in the world, but it's got to be tight. Yeah. And he's always tight. And I don't think it's just a musical element. I think his personality mm-hmm. was, and that's invisible. We're not going to see that very yeah. much. It was, it was a part of that, that chemistry, mm-hmm. you know, that happened in the studio and that happened with them as four people. Um, so I, we can't undersell Ringo. You know, I always, I always try to champion him as much as I can. Sure. Even though people are like, oh, you know, that there, I mean, it is a funny. I hate that argument. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. You won't find any of that on this podcast. Yeah, good. <laughs> We're big Ringo fans. Yeah. Like, I, and I think it's true. Like, if you think of a house, the foundation, like you can't really see it. It's not shiny. It's not, you know, gold plated or anything. It's not fancy. Right. But it's literally holding the house together. Yeah. It's like it's there. Yeah. And, and you I, need it. And I think on an emotional level, that's probably like personality wise, relationship wise. I think that's probably true of him as well. Yeah. Not just in terms of drumming or in, in you know, music. Um, oh, we totally got sidetracked. Where, 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 where <laughs> did okay. we start? I, I don't remember how we got here. <laughs> that's okay. I, it's my fault. I keep doing this. Just, this, this show just is reach all over with a tangent. stick and it's smack it. This episode of Bullshitting with Beatles. <laughs> Get back on topic, Koopa. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Well, why don't we uh, why don't we switch to our song of the week discussion? I have to pull my hair back. It's getting long and it's getting in the way now. So, shall we? Coming in this week at number one fifty nine is Good Night. Sweet dreams for me 
written sometime during the sessions for the White Album. Good Night is a track that often surprises people to discover that it was written by John as opposed to written by Paul. Uh, possibly the most lush track the band ever, was ever involved with. Uh, it was written by John as a lullaby for his son Julian. A fact Julian apparently didn't find out until he was 30 years old. Uh, it's never been officially stated as to why John gave it to Ringo to sing. Uh, some think that since he, uh, since Ringo always had one song per disc, he would need two for the double album and only had Don't Pass Me By in the can. Uh, others speculate John may have felt he wouldn't really fit in with his image to sing such a sweet song. It should be noted, though, that on the demo version he recorded for Ringo to learn the track, both Jeff Emmerich and Paul noted how tender and lovely John's vocal was on it, uh, but that version seems to have been lost to time. So the song went through several arrangement changes on its journey. Uh, first on June 28, 1968, with John playing guitar uh, and playing a part that sounds strikingly like his finger-picking part on Dear Prudence. Um, several days later, Ringo adds a vocal to this version, uh, while John, George, and Paul add three-part harmony underneath. Uh, throughout these early versions, Ringo's also ad-libbing these like spoken word intros, playing the role of a father getting his kids ready for bed, and it's super charming, if not a little clumsy. A little clumsy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a few weeks later, on July 22nd, uh, with George Martin having written the score for the song at John's request, and a request to, quote, make it corny. Uh, a, few takes are <laughs> a few takes are done, possibly just rehearsal takes, of Ringo on vocal, George Martin on piano, and then later on the same day, a 26-piece orchestra records George Martin's score while Ringo sings a live vocal. Additional vocals are added to the track by the Mike Sams singers, uh, who'd previously appeared in I Am The Walrus, adding the ho-ho-ho-ha-ha-ha, everybody's got one, and stick it up your jumper vocal parts, uh, and adding a much more traditional vocal accompaniment on this song, including the gorgeous soprano high D note at the beginning of the song. Uh, they go on to add vocals as well to Phil Spector's production of the Let It Be album. So Ringo then redoes his lead vocal after this session, and the track is finished in the early morning hours of July 23rd, 1968. It's released as the closing track to side four of the White Album, and obviously was never performed live by the Beatles or by any of its solo members. So... Why do I have Goodnight at 159? So this is kind of like a strange outlier track for the band. It's oddly Disney-ish in its orchestration. Uh, the addition of the Mike Sam Singers gives it a bit, a bit of a Lawrence Welk feel to it as well, I think. Uh, so it's a bit strange to have a band who's always prided itself on looking forward, looking backwards at what's essentially the musical stylings of their audience parents. It's not quite the throwback in time that Paul always gets crucified for with his music hall songs, you know, his granny shit, as John likes to call it. But it's interesting to think that while Paul always gets dragged for those songs, this track rarely ever gets discussed. Uh, that said, I think this is an absolutely gorgeous tune. Um, it's really a different feeling. It's a different chord structure. It's not very John uh, in terms of what you think from him, what you expect from him, especially here. Um, I think giving it to Ringo is probably kind of a double edged sword, though, for the song, because I think with his personality, Ringo's able to sell the mood and the feeling of the song in a way that the other three couldn't do. But on the flip side, coming out of Revolution 9, I'm not sure an orchestral lullaby sung by Ringo is the palate cleanser that everybody wants. And I think that keeps people from, you know, giving the song what it deserves at that point. Um, though I'm not sure where else on the record it could go but the last song. Uh, that said, I really enjoy it, especially in the context of the album. It really works for me as a closer. It's not one I often go to out of my on my own out of context, but I really do enjoy it. I love the score for it. It's really gorgeous, and I enjoy it in the same way that I enjoy things that like make me nostalgic and remind me of my grandmother. And this song definitely reminds me of the music my grandmother listened to. Um, I'm just not sure that that's what people want from the Beatles, though, because sometimes it's not even what I want from the Beatles. 
Um, but I think it's better than it gets credit for. And it's a fantastic way to end an album that's so all over the place anyway. So that's my two cents. Jason, I turn it over to you, my friend. What do you think? I think, um, I think looking at it, we certainly look at it individually. I think the piano version is super charming. Mm -hmm. Um, If I were just going to listen to it by itself, that might be the version that I listen to just because it's so sweet and it's so natural and it's it's unforced. But the orchestrated version is, is done for a specific point and a specific effect. And it, I don't think we can separate it from the album as a whole, just like we can't separate revolution nine from the album. And I, and I think we can't separate it from Revolution 9. I think on some level it's a very perverse move by Lennon to say we're going to do Revolution 9 and we're going to follow it with the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you expect after Revolution 9? What can possibly follow that sound collage of just of actual revolution? And this totally defies expectations. Like, yeah. Who would expect that? Lullaby. Yeah. Blambo. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. A lullaby after the apocalypse. Of course. <laughs> Makes perfect sense to right. me. That's a very I mean, John movie. It's a very Lennon thing to do, isn't it? So that, I mean, that's how I see uh, both its placement, the fact that, that he's doing it in such a big way, mm-hmm. um, that he's having Ringo do it. I mean, you know, Ringo wasn't going to do revolution nine, <laughs> you know, he wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna, he wasn't gonna, he wasn't gonna do anything that edgy. So, you know, I, I think it's, to me, it makes, it makes sense in the context of the album and it makes sense in the context of what comes after this, mm-hmm. you know, this really, really crazy track that most people skip. Yeah. I mean, they probably skip revolution nine and good night. I think, I think you're probably right. And yeah. that's the bummer. I think, because yeah. I feel like this track is actually, really nice like it's a nice way to end such a long album yeah um you know because the much like all things must pass there's a there's a lot of information yeah on that record so to end it in this kind of nice soothing way it's actually really pleasant yeah yeah but i also think it you know here here's where i think you know you look at the white album as the album as a piece of art unto itself which you know we've sort of lost that we're back to singles now individual songs Mm -hmm. but you know they created that sense and and this is a perfect example of that i mean that the white album i saw someone describe it as their wait modernist totem i think once and i went that's just such a perfect (laughs) description of this album you know yeah um it it is an artistic statement and and he's saying you know with these two songs back to back that in itself is an artistic statement it's it's capping the album in a way that you would not expect because you've got all these different kinds of songs and and um, different effects and you know you can like some and not like others but generally like we said there's going to be a lot to chew on there Mm -hmm. there's going to be something something to you know that you'll want to listen to and uh, and this is just sort of taking all of that and wrapping it up in in such an unexpected way you know it is perverse it is linen and uh, I saw years ago I saw somebody say you know you you can't just pretend that revolution nine doesn't exist. I mean, you know about it. You've probably heard it. You've skipped it. You know, you've torn it, turned the needle off the record in the middle of it, but you know, it exists, you know, it's there and it's going to affect your perception of the album. Even if you never play it again, mm-hmm. you know, it's there. Yeah. And you know, I think good night is again, part of that effect. They're, they're, they're both on the end of the album. We know they're both there somewhere psychologically we understand the effect of those two songs, those, those two recordings ending 
this, you know, this massive artistic statement. Mm-hmm. And whatever that, whatever that is, I mean, I think we indiv- all individually sort of have to figure out what that is for us. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I just think of John and Paul and that picture that Linda took of them, you know, working out the track listing and sort of cackling at the, mm-hmm. you know, the, <laughs> the move of putting those two together and putting them at the end of that, at the right. album. And it's just like, that had to be just like, oh yeah, this is, <laughs> this is what we're doing. They just you went, know. oh shit, this is good. <laughs> and one of them just goes, I'm sure George Martin was like, these guys are fucking assholes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, that's someone like, we've been here 24 hours, boys. I'm going home. <laughs> I'm, I'm tired. Yeah. Oh I don't care what you do last. <laughs> sure. Whatever. What's the new Mary Jane? Sure. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> what do you think on this one, Jules? Um, I, I Sorry, like, I just called you Jules for the first time in like 10 years. That's fine. On the podcast. Well, guys. we... And I was here to witness it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we uh, hung out with some old friends so, yeah. who call me Jules. She called you Jules. So yeah. I think it's just stuck in your head. Yeah. It's fine. Whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm not mad about it. Thanks. Uh, I like this, but like not as a Beatles song because it's like not in a way like mm-hmm. it's so different from literally everything else in their catalog yeah so it's so it feels so like weird and out of place but I guess that sort of lends to your idea that like it's supposed to be it's supposed right. to be the complete opposite yeah. of the song before it um it's it's really beautiful and like lush and lovely um it kind of makes me think of like pure imagination Mm -hmm. from Willy Wonka Mm, and the chocolate factory and that it sort of has this like a little bit of like childlike wonder to it but then like this dark scary side a little bit like and I can't place like specifically what it is in the song but it just is a little like you said you thought that uh cry baby cry Mm -hmm. was a little spooky and I didn't get that at all but Mm -hmm. I totally get this on I totally get that on this one. Like just a like just that little bit of darkness to it that is really interesting to me. That reminds me of kind of that conver- the conversation we had with Mike Viola about your mother should know. There, it's very like music hall, but there's this kind of like demented, deranged tinge to yeah. it. Yeah, that just makes it a little unsettling. That, but it really like varnishes the whole thing and unsettling. I've I have heard that that dark undercurrent in Good Night. For yeah. years too, yeah. There's something about it, and I don't think it's just because it follows Revolution Nine. I think there's something in that arrangement. It's just it's so much, you know. It something becomes so sweet that it flips over, and it's not sweet anymore. Mm-hmm. It becomes kind of oppressive. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like you likened it to like a, I think you said a little bit Disney. Yeah, very, which it reminds is, me of like a Fantasia esque type, like very yeah. big orchestra which I've always thing. found very dark I never liked Fantasia as a kid like really? it really just rubbed me the wrong way I don't know like I did not find it joyful or happy it mm. always was very scary to me mm-hmm. I didn't like it um, but it's also like it kind of reminds me of how Disney like everything on the surface is beautiful yeah. and the people that work there have to travel underground right. because they don't want you to see <laughs> right. the, you know like everything on the surface is very beautiful don't look behind the curtain you know like right. that little bit of like oppressively beautiful yeah <laughs> like, yeah exactly yeah. i mean yeah. and i get i don't think it's oppressively beautiful but i think crybaby i agree with crybaby cry it does have that sort of weird dark undercurrent it's kind of like yeah. it's ominous to me yeah. it's always felt ominous mm. yeah and i think i think maybe i'm experiencing that 
you know, having listened to the record and knowing where I'm going for the next 12 minutes. Yeah. And it's just like an already kind of darkest dark thing just gets darker. Yeah. You know. But it is very beautiful. And like, it's a lovely way to end a record. Like, I, I feel like there is a lot happening there. And it is like a little like, even though it is like a little bit dark, like it's still lovely and calming yeah. in a way mm-hmm. so um i don't know i also have a black heart so like who knows <laughs> whatever um maybe it's just my jam yeah. <laughs> um but it it really is like a lovely way to just sort of like put a bow on it yeah. and like okay you're done now just like i'm gonna sit in silence for the next 20 minutes and process everything that happened i don't know if it's such a pretty bow though i mean it it has the all the sort of gloss of something like that mm-hmm. but you know I, I go back to this idea of, of this in Revolution 9 being this kind of one-two punch to end it yeah and and John is not gonna let you go out gently mm-hmm. <laughs> you know he doesn't want I don't I mean maybe I'm reading too much into this but my sense is that this is not just so that you can you can just sort of ease into the end of the record you know um with Revolution 9, he's doing something extremely disruptive. You know, mm-hmm. that's a disruptive track. There's, I don't think, you know, you can look at it a lot of different ways, but that is meant to disrupt the listening experience. Yeah. You know, sitting passively, taking in this music, whatever, smoking pot, whatever, you know, what, drinking or just, just lying there and kind of letting the music wash over you. This is not meant to do that. And Good Night coming after that is... I mean, it's such a, it's such a challenge. You know, he's challenging you with these two tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, when you take something like Side Two of Abbey Road, which is so beautiful and so gorgeously constructed and so powerful, like when you when you get to the end of that, you just feel like I mean, I feel energized. Yeah, it's such an incredible, just like technically, spiritually, you know, everything. Just just a it's a high wire act and it works. Mm-hmm. And the end of the White Album is not like that at all. Yeah. You know, it's, I don't think that's, that's the intent. It's almost kind of like a weird, brave, like a weird new world. Yeah. You know, it's like you've got, you've gotten through the end of the world and now like you're looking at your new reality. Yeah. 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 I mean, is it this sort of like, is, is, I mean, that's an interesting thought experiment. Like what, what, what comes after revolution? Yeah. You know, is it, and, and, you know, people have made this this case I think effectively that Revolution 9 is sort of like what does an actual revolution sound like mm-hmm. if you're going to do a sound collage that sort of you know recreates that effect um, so what's after revolution is this like is it this enforced Disneyland where mm-hmm. everything is beautiful and saccharine and, mm-hmm. and and like over the top yeah gorgeousness like that where it becomes oppressive mm-hmm. you know i'm 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 taking a very dark reading of this but you know i'm on the, with you on, i'm like yes <laughs> i'm super intrigued yeah i can like i'm buying into your theory okay like, i'm good. all in good. i love this thanks for coming to my ted talk <laughs> it's been great <laughs> my wonder, dark ted talk <laughs> i wonder if ringo i wonder if he like got that same vibe from because I feel like he de- he delivers it kind of in like a overtly droll kind mm-hmm, of way mm-hmm. um it's almost like he's acting it a little bit yeah as you know yeah I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into that I mean I think there's this there's this duality to 
anything like this where you have in the moment of recording and in the concept of making something like this, just as a separate individual track, you're trying to achieve uh, a certain, you know, result. Mm -hmm. And so Ringo is doing his like kindly fatherly recording voice and his, you know, his singing is kind of naive and, and that's perfect for the song and, and the overall effect of just that recording. But then, you know, what I'm talking about is, what does this mean in the in the context of the album as a whole? Mm-hmm. You know, w- what's happening after Revolution Nine? How does John? How do the Beatles want us to to leave this thing? Mm-hmm. You know, unsettled because it does feel unsettling. Yeah, mm-hmm. but can you imagine if the record ended with Revolution Nine? Yeah, what a f- uh, what a nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, like that would have been just horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's perverse. I mean, there's that whole talk about how John wanted to end abbey road with i want you she's so heavy or just cuts cuts, yeah you know um but you know i hear i think he's i think he's attenuating that a little bit he's Mm -hmm. he's shaping that response by by having good night yeah and i mean i don't know do we know when they decided on that pairing you know because they're recorded pretty close to each other yeah i I don't know when it got decided i haven't found it yeah i mean i think all that came down at the end when he and Paul are working out the It would track seem like listing. it's got to be the only option. I yeah. mean, yeah. literally the only place that song can exist. Yeah. Once you have it in its final state. Yeah. I think so you'd I, have to know that's the closing. I mean, I don't know for sure, but it, I would think that if that's the case, then. Yeah. I mean, you also have to think like he's creating these things in such close proximity to each other is revolution one turns into revolution nine. And then not long after that, you, he writes, he records good night. Maybe he'd written already, but all this is happening kind of around the same time. And, and it's just, and it's kind of schizophrenic. And you think like, what's going on in his mind? He's well, like the night before they start work on this, they're doing, uh, everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey, which is yeah. like the most polar opposite, like screaming shout rock and roll tune. Yeah. Uh, that's like abrasive and it's like shrillness in some ways. Yeah. And then the next night is this gorgeous, beautiful, tender thing that he wrote for his kid. And like, what's wrong with this? dude? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's also part of just being at play in the studio and and being at play with, with your craft and saying like, I can do this. We can do this as a band. Like we can, that was the thing, you know, the thing he would say is like the Beatles could do anything. We can, Mm -hmm. the Beatles can, uh, can embrace any number of styles and, because sort of the, the the boundaries of what they could do were so elastic, they could do all these things. Yeah, and so I think he, you know, he's playing within that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So how do we feel ranking it at one fifty nine out of two twenty three? You're I looking mean, at me like you want me to answer. <laughs> no, I have my answer. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you. Oh, um, gosh, choice. I don't know. It's hard because it's like so not your sort of stereotypical Beatles song. So it's like hard to place it somewhere. Um, but also, I really like your theory of it being like sort of the fu- like where mm-hmm. it falls on the album. Super intrigued by this. Song. Yeah. So that's like making me like it more. <laughs> um, Top 20. <laughs> it's number one. <laughs> Dark as hell, I love it. It's number one. <laughs> um, I don't know. I I still feel like I'd prob. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I think I like it where it is. Yeah. Okay. Maybe up a little. Like, well, a little bit. Maybe, maybe up a little. 
into the one forties, maybe. Yeah. One thirties. Yeah. Okay. Because it's it actually is like very beautiful. So and it's and it's interesting and creative. So yeah, I think I'd maybe move it up a couple. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would cheat a little bit because I really like the piano version and. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm listening to it on its own, that's probably the version that I want to hear. Yeah. Um, just because it is, it, at, in and of itself, it is a pure thing in that sense. You know, mm -hmm. it is not part of the album. It's separate. And when you're breaking these songs apart like this and putting them in a list, then it's all about, you know, that individual song. Mm -hmm. So many of these songs, I think, are, you know, it's part of the context of listening to the album. Right. Like, how, I don't, I'd be very interested to see what you do with the, you know, the songs from the medley. Like, <laughs> How do you? Well, I'll tell you, the medleys are all together. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I decided that was the decision of like, well, okay, this is going to be, you know, A, B, C, D. Right. Like right, they're going right, to have, right. they have to go together. I, yeah. I can't extract Mean Mr. Mustard from Polly right. and Pam. Like right. they've got to be together. So. And that's how I kind of feel about all of these, especially once they get to Rubber Soul, maybe definitely with Revolver and past that, where they're, they're looking at the album as a whole piece, not just mm -hmm. a collection of individual songs. Yeah. So there it's very hard to, to I mean, I sure you can say like, oh, I don't really like, you know, I want to tell you because it's kind of atonal and dissonant and, and annoying. And I can skip that one. But in the context of the album, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you how do you take that out of the album and, you know, and then still talk about it as right. Revolver? Mm -hmm. you know? I guess some people do, but that's my job. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you, you take it out. You put it over there on the shelf. Um, that might also be a bad, bad example because I don't know many too many defenders of that song. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, not a bad song. No, I mean, it's a cool little riff. I mean, it's it's he's making a point, a very yeah. specific. You know, I think he made it again, not quite as well, and only a northern song. But that's another story. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's context, um, and so I have a very hard time ranking. Beatles songs because then I start looking at like what album is it on and then what's the effect of its placement on the album mm -hmm. um, so not as an individual song yeah. yeah that's much harder for me to to make that distinction sure but like just as a song in and of itself I you know I, I think it should be much higher because I think of it in terms of that um, that piano that solo piano version that's that's where my mind goes now it's time to say good night good night sleep tight now well it's hard though because because those versions have only existed in well, at least in, in in my brain since 2018 right i mean was that something that was that floating around before uh, the, there was a shorter version of it that had been released on Anthology in 95 right, that had been right. cross-faded into the or orchestra. Mm -hmm. um, so the whole version hadn't existed. Now, see, what does it for me is the version with the, with the three of them doing harmony vocals. Right. Underneath it. That's like, that was a whole new thing for me. Yeah. It was like, oh, shit. Yeah. I would like this yeah. to be a completed version. Like, yeah. If that existed, it's just, it's piano accompaniment. Or is it, is it piano or is it well, guitar? It's guitar. So it's, it's, it's John finger-picking yeah. the guitar, and then they overdub more guitars, and one of them is at half speed. So right. when it's so played back, it's a pitch higher. It's, it's higher. Mm -hmm. um, 
but the it, the vocal arrangement on that is the interesting yeah, thing to me. It's super like, cool. I, I actually was I didn't have time, but I was going to see if I could do a mashup of that and the orchestra, um, and just see how that sounded. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'll maybe I can do that and send it to you if you want to hear. Yeah. It. If I have time, <laughs> um, but I I just think like there's something there because I'm you know I'm a sucker for vocal harmony and mm-hmm. Beatles vocal harmony in particular is just like they had it you know they they really really knew how to sing with each other yeah it's like listening to like those isolated beach boys yeah like the pet sound sessions or any of those session tapes it's just like good lord how do you do this yeah i mean they and and that's the thing that i don't think the beatles get enough credit for is that they Mm -hmm. were really good harmony vocal yeah especially when you listen to that version you think they've only just learned this yeah like they've only figured these parts out probably in the last hour right and they're already that good together and that in in sync with each other like yeah. it's you can't buy that kind of stuff it's yeah. incredible yeah really really beautiful so yeah so I think it is like song versus you know the recording that's on the album mm-hmm. I mean that's how I'm kind of divining it in my head okay okay I can dig that so at, at, well, and, and as you mentioned wanting to do you know mashups with, with multi-tracks let's, I want to shift a little bit to your podcast okay uh, when did you start producing the Beatles podcast ooh good question uh, maybe 2018, maybe. What brought you to that? So the bootleg collecting was, you know, I've been doing that for years, mm-hmm. and um, this underground, you know, collectors circle where we're all trading things. People are people are doing deconstruction. This is before we really have the software to do this. Um, it's much better now, much easier. But people would do deconstructions, especially, and it was much easier with the four-track recordings because you could sort of take things apart. And um, and so I would, you know, I would sort of listen to what other people were doing, and I would try things on my own, and I would work with other people, and we would sort of combine efforts and come up with things. And and so it just became this kind of like, okay, well, let's let's dig into the recordings, and and um, and I would send things to other writers, and this, it was a friend of mine was like, this is an excellent calling card. Let's just like to send these you know, compilations I would do, these, you know, chronology sets. And uh, I met Tim Riley years ago this way. And uh, we were we were talking one day, and he's like, you should do a podcast. Mm. And I went, I don't know what a podcast is. <laughs> 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 I mean, I knew what it was, but I'd, right. I'd never listened to one. I mean, that seems impossible now. Um, so I thought about it and I went, well, okay, I, uh, I'll look into this. And so I started listening to podcasts and trying to figure out like, how would I want to do a podcast on this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's the, the talking, just sort of like having people in a room and, or on, you know, on telephone or whatever and interviewing them. And that didn't seem right. And, and I listened to one called, you must remember this, which is about old Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, which was great, is great. And, I thought this is the way I want to go. It's scripted. There's good production. It's like, there's a story, you know, you get from the beginning to the end of this thing and you feel like you've had an experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, that's what I want to do. Incredibly difficult. Of course. Um, I'm not going to do anything easy. Right. Right. (laughs) I'm just going to throw shit at the wall. Right. (laughs) I was like, I love how well thought out this is. We were just like, ah, fuck it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I wish. I, oh my god! A friend of mine years ago was like, "You like to make things difficult on yourself, don't you?" And I'm like, "Yep, yep, sure do." If I have to climb up on the roof and do it, that's I'm definitely going to take that right. <laughs> so yeah, so it uh, and then I just started writing episodes, and I thought, you know, what do I want to talk about 
you know, what, what can I just sort of turn out very quickly? And I did a, I did a few really like within two or three weeks and I thought, Oh, this is, this is great. I can do this. And then I got more ambitious and it took longer. Mm-hmm. And then I was, you know, interviewing people and I was, I was, you know, getting musicians to recreate scores. Uh, you know, I've totally lost my mind. These are, these are going to be, which it, it's, it's pretty incredible. Like it's parts that, you know, that you don't hear. Yeah. Um, that, change you know your perception of the song when you actually hear the score isolated it's a a fantastic listen yeah and and having you know knowledgeable musicians who can play these things and can say well this is what's happening Mm -hmm. you know musically and this has an emotional effect that you may not be aware of but you're actually feeling this as you're Mm -hmm. listening to it um and this i mean the strawberry field score is just gorgeous you Mm -hmm. know it's a it's a really powerful powerful thing and uh I just knew I wanted to do that one and I spent way too much money and I haven't made the money back selling the track, <laughs> but you know, it's a, it's a labor of love. And I think a lot of people have gotten a lot out of listening to that. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody sent me a message on Instagram one day and said, you know, maybe it's the pandemic, but when I heard that score, when I heard you sort of breaking it down, I, I just broke into tears. It was just beautiful. And I, and I thought that's great. You know, that's, I want people to have an emotional experience listening to these, you know, yeah. to this music mm-hmm. and, and just revealing elements that you don't hear. Yeah. And, um, I'm, I'm going to do that with my sweet Lord. And isn't it a pity because I, I got scans of the handwritten scores from John Barham, who I interviewed for the book and a composer in the UK has recreated the scores, both of those scores using, um, high-end orchestral samples so bbc orchestra samples wow. and it's i didn't I, a few years ago i started realizing that this is where we were in the technology and i was blown away mm-hmm. i just did not realize that we could do this now yeah and so he sent me the recreations of the scores and they're incredible and there's a whole um woodwind and brass section on isn't it a pity that we've never heard before wow. it was written into the score either it was not recorded or it was most of it's mixed so low on the record you can't hear it. Mm-hmm. Wow. So he's recorded that and you can hear it now loud and clear. And it's just like it's another world underneath this song that we don't even know is there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's incredible. Like to yeah. just peel away all the music that you're sort of familiar with on top mm-hmm. and you hear this like gorgeous, he has like 29 instruments playing. Wow. Goodness. It's the biggest arrangement on the album. If, if, it, if it was recorded, uh, as he wrote it, it would have mm-hmm. been the biggest arrangement on the album. Wow. Yeah. All that is like so fascinating to me. We had a guest on last season, Mike Viola, mm-hmm. and he did these, <clears throat> nowhere near as involved as your podcast, but he did these little um, like Instagram reels mm-hmm. of making some of the songs on his last record. Mm-hmm. And he would like be, the video would just be like his hand in the mixing board and he would like you know, turn down this track and turn yeah. up this track. And, and it was so cool to like hear all these little bits of this song that are not always prominent. And you're like, Oh, I do hear that in this song. That's so cool. As, as not a musician, I'm always so impressed by brains that can put these things together and create a, a, a like a finished sound yeah comprised of all of these little things and how do you know to put them together like how do you know like mm-hmm. oh, i want yeah. this 
I want this instrument to make this sound and I want it to be like this note and I want it to be this like how, how does it even work like how do you get there and then to do it well yeah. like <laughs> I was I was talking to an arranger friend recently he's a jazz pianist and um we were talking about Ravel because Ravel is the great orchestrator, right? Mm. And if you listen to the Mother Goose Suite or, uh, you know, Bolero, you hear the, especially the Mother Goose Suite, you hear these colorations, you hear these pairings of instruments in the orchestra that create a specific effect that has an emotional power, mm-hmm. right? How do you know to do that? <laughs> I asked him, like, how do you know how to do something like that? And we're talking the early 20th century. It's not like you. You know, you could you had a recording studio you could go into and you could, you know, have all these things and play like the Beatles did or like we do. And we have all these samples that we can play and go, oh, you know, I want to hear what this instrument sounds like with this. You know, you had to know. And that's mind blowing to me. Like mm-hmm. that's our brains. My brain doesn't work that way. I'm sure there are people alive now who can do things like that. Mm-hmm. But on that level is to me is just astounding. Mm-hmm. And and I saw that with you know with these with the with these scores too when he when he uh, this composer Joe Lawrenson is his name sent me these and he I ha- I asked him to send me the individual stems so I have you know violin one violin two violas cellos basses all that separated so I can play with those individually and do a mix and on my sweet lord I brought in the basses and then the cellos and then the violas and violin two violin one each in sequence as it went through and you could hear this thing take shape Mm -hmm. and it's just, I mean, I want to do that for the, I want to do that so everybody can hear that for the podcast. There are other things that I want to bring out on the score and in the making of that, that song, but just doing that was kind of like, Whoa, it's a, it's a Eureka moment, you know, and you, and you don't get that even just playing the score isolated, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a different experience to just sort of, sort of take these pieces and play them individually and then show how they combine to create this other thing. Yeah. You know, that's, that's fascinating. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know how I've done a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of orchestration through these samples for a friend's um, film. And it was pure agony. (laughs) (laughs) Like days in front of the computer trying to figure out how to make all this stuff work together. And I did, I finally figured it out, but I mean, I just have such incredible respect for people who can, who can do things like, you know, what George Martin would do mm-hmm. and, uh, and what John Barham, you know, did for these, these arrangements on all things must pass. Um, just incredible. I've never experienced it on a, um, on a more orchestral side, but, uh, I always kind of giggle, you know, times when I've been making a record and you'll come by and, you know, we'll be working on a part that isn't necessarily like a main melody part or like, you know, something that's obvious. You just be like, what the hell are y'all doing? Mm-hmm. It sounds like absolute ass. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then when you hear it in the context, you're like, Oh, oh. that's cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just, my brain has never worked that way. And I've watched you work. I, it's fascinating to me. Like, it, I just don't understand it. Like, I can't yeah. comprehend it. I can't comprehend, like, this one little thing is going to make a difference in this bigger picture. Like, just mm-hmm. I mean, I do wild. it with the Beatles, but I think you can, honestly, you could do it with any recording artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, sure. it, you, sure. you can do that with your own multi-tracks. You can, mm-hmm. you know, I've played stuff before where I've overdubbed, you know, played a bunch of instruments and then I take it out. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Like just the vocal and just the guitar and just this. And you can change a song completely. Yeah. Prince did that. Yeah. You know, we'd record a bunch of shit and mm-hmm. then he would just start pulling stuff out. 
Yeah. And that's big stars. Third is a lot of that. Yeah. Like recording stuff. And then, well, let's take everything out and just try that and that. Yeah. Okay. Now that's something. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I mean, I've wanted to do that with, you know, classical music. I, I, when Joe sent me those, those arrangements, those recreations, I said, God, I would love to do this with like a Beethoven symphony, Mm -hmm. you know, just, just take all these parts out and take them up, you know, take them individually and say, let's see, let's see what this is doing. And then let's see what this part's doing and then put them together and see what happens. And yeah. I mean, it's the Beatles is they're just famous and everybody knows them. And, <laughs> and you know, they were brilliant. I'm not trying to downplay any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're great examples to be able to talk about these techniques and this, the effect of music and, and harmony and how all these, you know, disparate, not disparate parts, but all these different parts work together. Um, but I, th- you know, I think it's true of most music. Yeah. You know, especially when you know, there are a lot of elements working together when it's a band playing, mm-hmm. you take individual things out, and listen to them and they do sound kind of funny. Like, mm-hmm. how does how does that work? Mm-hmm. You know, and then you bring it back into the mix. You're like, oh, OK, mm-hmm. because it's all respond. They're all responding to each other. Yeah. 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 Well, it's like uh, what was it on three, two, one? When there was, they're like isolating the tracks, and Paul's vocal is like terrible. What song oh, yeah. was that I'm on? Oh yeah, the sky with diamonds. Yeah. yeah, and he's like, "This is why we don't do this," and it sounds terrible. But then when you put it in the context of the song, it's it's great. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> it's you, like there's no problem. Yeah. But when you just listen to that vocal track, it's like, oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. But there's something. So I mean, something. So it's having some effect, some human effect somewhere in there, mm-hmm. even if you're not registering it consciously you're you're hearing that somehow mm-hmm. so cool yeah Ugh. this is fascinating frames <laughs> before we wrap up yes time for some rapid fire questions sure all right you ready your favorite beatles song oh, yeah you knew it was coming <laughs> i'm gonna say a day in the life just because i the effect that had on me the first time i heard it was profound yeah mm-hmm. and i've probably never recovered i can i can dig that yeah you're gonna take the next one no, you got the list. <laughs> it's the same questions every week. Okay, You've been here before. I, know. I should know. I like to keep. I, people want to hear you. No, they don't. You're the fan fan. Yeah, they do. Come on. <laughs> you the can fan do it. Less laughing. <laughs> I know you have like this very nice podcast voice, and I'm over here like a freaking hyena. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, your least favorite Beatles song. Ooh, the one you always skip. I gotta go. I gotta agree with George Martin. Only a Northern song. I think. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I, I the horns just are a mess. Like mm-hmm. what's happening there? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. them, right? Isn't yeah. that like them just like blowing into trumpets? Is and, it? I think so. That's no, like I, I don't know. I, I that song I have a block against that. If I ever have to write about that song, I'm gonna have to be under hypnosis or I something. I think that's the tr- <laughs> that's the song where like George was abs like George Martin was absent for the session. Oh. And they were just like out of it just tracking uh, whatever and ooh. off the rails like harrison's got like the ashtray on fire on his head well no that's that's helter skelter that's, oh that's helter yeah, Skelter. Yeah, okay yeah. that's what i'm thinking we're like just that just random horn noises yeah 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 no that was that was chris thomas was on that mm. um i asked him about that once i was like that was total madness <laughs> like <laughs> like what can he do he's like 21 years old like okay <laughs> have fun boys <laughs> sounds great <laughs> whatever you say do it again <laughs> Uh, your favorite Beatles album? Oh God! Um, I mean, the the thing that got me writing about them was Revolver mm-hmm. because I realized it was the center. It was sort of the center of everything. 
it, you know, it's, it's, it's a good kind of middle point and it's where they sort of map out the rest of their career in terms of, um, you know, kind of what kind of band they're going to be. They're going to be a studio band. They're going to be experimental. Um, anything is possible. Mm-hmm. You know, any style is possible. And, and, you know, once I started looking into it, that got me thinking like, how do I want to write about this band? Like, what do I want to say? I want to add something to the conversation that hasn't been said before. Mm-hmm. So I always, I mean, I always say that, but I mean, Sometimes I just want to listen to Abbey Road. Sometimes I want to listen to Hard Day's Night because mm-hmm. it's just beautiful songcraft, you know. And and again, the vocal harmonies, it's it's like if you want simple, clean, direct pop songs mm-hmm. that are professionally done and beautifully performed, that's the album. It's hard to go wrong. Yeah, yeah. but um, I mean, so it, I mean, it's it's a revolving, this revolver, Hard Day's Night, White Album, sometimes and Abbey Road. But I probably lately I have probably played Abbey Road more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, your favorite memory associated with a Beatles song thing, Beatle. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, It's it's talking to people who have worked with them, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, Chris Thomas was a great interview, really super nice guy, especially all the stuff that he's done. Klaus was just the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. I could not have hoped for a better interview from him. Um those are great memories. Yeah. You know, just I remember getting off the phone and just thinking, like, oh my God, like <laughs> the shit they just told me. This is gold. <laughs> and I text Ken and go, listen to this. <laughs> oh my God. And he's like, whoa, yeah, no kidding. So, yeah, though, I mean, those, those experiences of, um, yeah, sort of they asking questions and they tell me these things that sort of put me in the room. Mm-hmm. And then I take that and I write about it. You yeah. Know? Those are great experiences. And, you know, other writers, too. Like mm-hmm. Mark Lewison has always been extremely supportive and kind and generous. Um, and the whole 2018 White Album conference that Ken put together in New Jersey was just, it was, he invited so many people who had known each other for a long time, or in my case, I knew a lot of people through correspondence. So I knew people through emails and, and you know, phone calls. And we all got to hang out for three days. Mm-hmm. And at the, at the end, it felt like we had all been brought together in this big club. Yeah. And it just really a, a special thing, you know, kind of, kind of made me think of like what the early Beatle conventions must have been because they were very small mm-hmm. at the beginning, kind of intimate things. And, um, yeah. So those, I mean, it's, it's the people, I guess that, um, the friends we've made along the, the friends way. we've made along the way. <laughs> Have oh you my been to God. any of the Beatle conventions? I went to one in Chicago years ago. Okay. Um, that's where I, I, Tim Riley and I had been corresponding for a while, and we actually met at that one because I was I was going up there to do some research. the uh, The John Cage collection is near there, mm-hmm. and I wanted to hold the Beatle manuscripts, the the lyric sheets that uh, Paul had donated, and. Uh, and so on that trip, I went up there and, and did that. And that was a surreal experience. Yeah. And, uh, and then went to the convention and, and hung out with Tim and did some other stuff. Just kind of 
soaked it all in. Nice. But I don't, I don't know. It's not, it's not really my, my scene. I mean, I know I have to do it for the book, but, uh, <laughs> and I will, you know, gladly I'll sign books and I'll, you know, say hi to people. Yeah. Sure. I'm just not a crowd person. Yeah. yeah. I like, I like being, seems like my, it's a lot of crowd. Yeah. I've never been, we've talked about wanting to go, you know, next year, maybe when things are hopefully a little more under control, uh, Chicago would be a yeah. doable one. It seems like it'd be fun. Yeah. You know, like one of the things that we've really enjoyed as we've, the year that we've been doing this now, uh, like you said, is like the people that we've met yeah. has just been so much fun. Um, you know, people that have, you know, podcasts or written books or, you know, have worked with them in any way. Like, it's just so fun to meet these people uh, and just kind of find people that are like part of the same little tribe that you yeah. have always found yourself in, you know? Yeah. It's really been cool. So. Yeah. No, it's, it is. Uh, I mean, so that's the, I guess that's the answer to your question. Is yeah. the, you know, <laughs> it's fine. It's perfect. The, uh, the, the beetle people, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Brilliant. So what's next? What's next on the dock? Well, I've got, Ooh, s- before we get to that, sure. Will you retell the story that you told last night at the book event about, uh, when you talk to Klaus, how he ended the phone call. Cause I think that's the funniest thing I've heard in a long time. This wasn't the end of the phone call, but it, um, I asked him how he got started. We started this toward the beginning of the conversation. I asked him how he sort of got into playing with John and then playing with George and, you know, it became a uh, kind of session man for them. And he, he sort of told me and, and, he, and then he finished it by saying, and that's how I started playing with the Beatle boys. <laughs> And it was just this like sweet, you know, casual, relaxed, and I and I just thought, man, this is great. You yeah. Know? And and, my, and th- while I'm being the professional interviewer on the inside, I'm like, man, this guy is so nice. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, uh, just just whatever everything that I'd hoped yeah. he would be. Nice. And I guess yeah. like that's sort of why they, why he remained in their orbit because. Yeah he didn't treat them like he didn't put them on a pedestal. Like they were friends yeah. mm-hmm. and he was like a real person, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't just like, Oh my God. And he had his own career and his own interests. And, yeah. um, I, th- you know, he had known them from such an early age mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where, where they were not the stars, yeah. you know, and he connected with them when they were, you know, when they were not at that level and they didn't have all that nonsense to deal with. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think for them it was, it was kind of like, here's a safe person that we, yeah. you know, we, we know we, we can trust. trust. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yep. So what's next? I'm going to do more episodes of the podcast. When's that coming back? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> 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 I'm working on, I'm working on the, my sweet Lord and isn't it a pity episodes. Now I just wrote the one for tomorrow. Never knows. Ooh, Oops. gave that away. <laughs> um, and I sketched out the second season. Plus, I have some bonus episodes. I want to put the Chris Thomas interview up that I did in uh, at the White Album Conference. I did uh, a conversation with someone who uh, is a he drums in Beatlemania. Mm-hmm. Um, a conversation on Ringo, and he he sent some isolated drum tracks that he played that we can you oh, know fun. I'm gonna we're gonna play that so we can discuss that. Mm-hmm. So I have a few few of those things that I want to put out before I start the actual season. And then uh, before the season starts, it'll also be the George tracks, mm-hmm. and then I'll then I'll do the actual season. So I have a, once again big ambitious ideas for what I'm going to try <laughs> to accomplish. <laughs> Completely lost my mind. Yeah, just just <laughs> I know it. You don't have to call in. You don't have to write in and say you're crazy. I know it. 
fully aware. I get the same feedback all the time. These are these are going to be exhibits at my competency hearing <laughs> one day. <laughs> Sorry, we'll vouch for you. Thank you, thank you. If you would just come and say no, no, it's he's actually serving a purpose. That'd be great. Excellent. Well. I, for one, am looking forward to that. I thoroughly have enjoyed the podcast. Thank you. Um, as both a uh, a Beatles fan and a musician, you know, digging into how these records are made is like so much fun for me. Yeah, so, yeah it really so, is. So kudos. Yeah. Well done Thank on that. Thank you. And Ken yeah. and I are working on another book um, and possibly another book after that, uh, which I can't talk about yet. But we're getting there. Exciting, exciting. Yeah. yeah. So and lots of projects. Where can everybody keep up with all your ongoings? PT Beatles on Twitter. Uh, you can follow producing the Beatles on Facebook. You can, most people also follow me as a person, Jason Krupa on Facebook, even though I would like to keep those separate, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not happening anymore. Clearly. Sure. Yeah. So just follow me wherever, just, you know, I'm also on Instagram, um, which is more, you know, photo driven, mm-hmm. but I think Facebook, Facebook or Twitter are probably the best places. Yeah. And you can, you know, also go on producing the and email me there. If you'd like, you know, if you have specific questions you want to ask that way or just listen to the episodes and kind of poke around the website. Lovely. Uh, best place to pick up the book. Oh, um, I mean, it's on Amazon. Um, if, if you have a local bookseller, I would say go to your local bookseller. I just signed a bunch of copies for, you know, Octavia last night here in new Orleans. Mm-hmm. So if you're in new Orleans and you would like a copy, I would suggest going there. Do they ship at Octavia? They do. Okay. They ship, yeah. If you want a signed copy, you can order from Octavia Books? Yes. Yeah. You don't need to send any more dick rockets into space. <laughs> <laughs> We're good. Fine. Yeah. Find yeah. a local bookseller. You can leave ratings on Amazon, but don't maybe don't right. support them so much. <laughs> yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Goodness. Lovely. Well, Jason, this has been an absolute blast, man. Thank you so much for coming by uh, Ranking the Beatles. We've thoroughly enjoyed it. Hope you have as well. I have. Thank you very much. I would love to come back sometime. Well, we've got 150, uh, what was this one? 150. We've got 158 more. So All right. I'm sure we can find at least one. Well, okay. that, we can uh, probably squeeze you in. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We'll, we'll make it happen. Your people call my people. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, man. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot. Cheers. That's Jason Krupa, everybody. What a fantastic conversation. Really, really enjoyed getting to know him. It's funny because you followed him on Instagram years ago. Uh, no, Twitter. I followed Twitter. him on Twitter forever ago because he's a local photographer. And I was like, oh. As is Julian. Yes. Um, so I followed him. And then the Blado Beatles podcast had Kenneth Womack on. And he was talking about this book that he was writing with Jason Krupa. And I was like, why do I know that name? Where do I know that name from? That's so random. So I just happened to like look on Twitter and I was like, wait, I follow someone named Jason Krupa. And then then I read in his bio that he has a podcast producing the Beatles. And I was like, well, this has to obviously be the same person. How random that he is in my New Orleans photographer's world Mm -hmm. in addition to my now Beatles world. So that was like. the universes dance together. (laughs) And do how they mingle. Oh, dear. So, <laughs> so yeah, so now we have a, a new Beatles friend. Um, so, friends, what do you all think about Good Night at number 159? Is it too high? Is it too low? Or, Julia, is it... Just like Baby Bear's Port. Just right. <laughs> oh, yes, we got her in. We did it, gang. We got her. Uh. We got her on board. 
Let us know what you think in the comments. Uh, make sure you're following us on all the socials on Facebook at Ranking the Beatles. You have to think about it because it's been a hot minute. Yes. On Instagram at Ranking the Beatles. And on Twitter at Ranking Beatles. And of course, you can find everything Ranking the Beatles at our website, which is www.rankingthebeatles.com. That's right. Um, <laughs> all the links for the uh, the organizations we talked about at the top of the episode, we're going to put on there as well. They'll also be in the show notes. So, again, any assistance and help you can give to the good people of South Louisiana, greatly, greatly appreciated. Once again, thank you all so much for the uh, the kind words and kind vibes and assistance you threw our way over the last couple of months. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. Appreciate it. I don't know what appreciate means. We appreciate it. Uh, you all are the awesomest people in podcast land, and we love you all very much. It's good to be back. I feel good. Welcome back. I'm stoked about it. You know what, gang? We're going to see you next week with another new episode. Unless a hurricane comes again. (laughs) I'm kidding. Don't jinx it. I'm going to edit it because we already recorded it. So I'm just going to edit it this weekend (laughs) so it's ready to go. (laughs) Uh, But we are back in action. Thank you all for all the support and for standing by us. Uh, We're not going anywhere. So we'll see you next week. Have a good one. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Julia. This is Ranking the Beatles. Adios. Bye, y'all.